The Guardian. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. I'm John Plunkett, and coming up on this week's Media Talk... Um, there also appears to have been a culture at the sum of illegal payments, and systems have been created to facilitate those payments whilst hiding the identity of the official. The Leveson Inquiry is back with its most extraordinary week to date. Plus, we talk to the British comedy award-winning Sarah Millican about her new BBC Two television show, imaginatively titled The Sarah Millican Television Show. And finally this week, we turn our attention to the wireless, where it's all changed at Radio One, and a radio industry heavyweight gives his verdict on controversial proposals for the future of BBC local radio. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. We start this week with the Leveson Inquiry, Where Else?, which returned this week for the second phase of its inquiry. Module 2, we promise not to use the word module in this podcast ever again, is looking at the relationship between the press and the police. I'm joined for this section of the show by The Guardian's Head of Media and Technology, Dan Saber. Now, Dan, the week began with an update from Sue Akers, the Deputy Assistant Met Police Commissioner, who's leading the investigation into hacking and bribery at News International. And to slip into tabloid ease for a second, it was nothing short of a bombshell. It was. It certainly was a bombshell. Uh, uh, you've got to remember, the Met Police have been rather goaded, I think, uh, uh, by the Sun in recent weeks. Uh, of course, nine, no, ten Sun, journal arrest, Sun journalists have been arrested uh, on suspicion of making corrupt payments to public officials. Uh, you then saw Rupert arrive in London, this sort of Sun fight back and saying, well, you know, hold on a minute, public interest, journalism, this, you know, sources are being given up to the police. This might only be, I don't know, a few lunches or... Uh, uh, you know, legitimate journalism. I mean, uh, uh, you and then Acres said it's, you know, it appears to have gone rather much further than that. I think the Met Police had a point to prove, and so Sue Acres uh, said there's a culture of illegal payments at the, at the Sun, which is the most extraordinary and powerful thing to say on oath before an inquiry. And it absolutely changed the game in terms of the, the debate around these sort of corrupt payments because uh, she went on to say that uh, this is not about the odd meal or drink. Uh, this is about sustained long-term payments over many years. I think that one person uh, in the public service received the £80,000 that people were effectively on retainer, that a journalist had £150,000 to pay out in cash to a number of sources, not just public officials, that should be added. Uh, you know, and, and so this widespread culture of of just sort of you know, money here, money there for stories and information. But if it's paid, as I say, to a public official, then on the face of it, it's bribery or corruption under the um, 1906 Prevention of Corruption Act. And, uh, well, that's a pretty serious um, state of affairs, I think. And uh, what you've seen in response is, you know, much quieter sun this week. And you, I think, also seen, because it's a police officer making these uh, allegations, these statements to the to the Leveson Inquiry, I think you're now seeing it's just increasingly likely that the the heavyweight of the US law will sort of crash land on, on News Corp, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act and so on, because you've got a copper basically saying this is, uh, uh, this is what went on. And it's a tricky line for Acres and the Inquiry to tread, isn't it, making these allegations at a time when the, the criminal investigations are ongoing, do you think? Yes, it is. It's very unusual, and I think they wouldn't have done it. I think the Met wouldn't have done it if they hadn't had this sort of pushback. People like Trevor Kavanagh talking about us. You know, Britain being, I think, a Stasi state or some such, his form of words. Uh, uh, Tom Mockridge, the chief executive of News International, talking about the sort of importance of press freedom and 
the police didn't, you know, would have remained quiet had it not had they not felt so much on the back foot. And I think they really had to come out and say, look, these are serious allegations and this is a serious inquiry. I mean, clearly we've got to wait. We've got to see if people will be charged. We've got to see if there'll be trials. So there's a long, long way to go. And of course, everyone's innocent until they're proven guilty. But but these statements by the Met really do indicate how you know how seriously they they're taking it. And no sooner have we had the Acres update than we heard an email which appeared to show that both Rebecca Brooks and Andy Colson were warned of uh, widespread hacking at the News of the World as early as 2006. And they, they knew this because Brooks had been briefed by an unnamed police source. How serious is this potentially for Brooks and Colson in the light of what they've previously said about what they knew about hacking? What an extraordinarily revealing email it, re- extraordinarily revealing email it was. What, what, what seems to have happened is that in August 2006, <coughs> Glenn Mulcair is arrested, Clive Goodman is arrested, and the cops seize Glenn Mulcair's uh, offices, if you like, down in Sutton. And Mulcair is a private investigator. He's employed by the News of the World, £100,000 a year. Basically, his job is to kind of hack phones, in essence. And um, uh, within a month or so, we sort of learned the course this week that the cops are kind of pretty much worked out that there's several hundred potential victims of phone hacking, uh, and that um, and that Glenn Mulcair only worked for the News International and seems to have earned perhaps as much as a million pounds, but certainly a six-figure sum. And so, in the context of this, the police get in touch with Rebecca Brooks about a month later, in the middle of September. <coughs> It's not quite clear why they do so. It appears that she's a victim of hacking. She certainly, we do learn, learn later in the week that she is a victim of phone hacking, I think twice a week even. And they give her this briefing, which she then relays orally to Tom Crone, the chief lawyer at the News of the World, who then writes it down in an email for Andy Colson, the, the then editor, and that's what we got to see. And that email sort of really summarises the essential facts of what we know now about the phone hacking scandal. It says there were 100 and 110 victims is the number they alight on. Anyway, a lot. Uh, clearly from whoever the flavour of the month is, from all walks of life, but targets of interest in the news of the world, uh, that Glenn Mulcair may have received a million quid. Uh, uh, certainly an awful lot of money. Uh, and the very vaguest references to possibly other journalists being involved, but this is very sort of in a very broad brush sort of way. So that information circulating, at the, circulating at the editor of The Sun, the editor of The News of the World, know all about this uh, within a month or so of Mulcair's arrest. And yet, we also learned in the inquiry that other people knew little to nothing. I think John Prescott was never told at all, as he told the inquiry, that his phone had been targeted, uh, or that his assistant, Joan Hamill, had been targeted. Uh, uh, we learned the other day after Simon Hughes, who was someone who was uh, was informed at the time, had a meeting, I think, on the 2nd of October, so just a couple of weeks later to this uh, Rebecca Brooks Copper meeting, he was told he had been targeted but was shown none of the underlying evidence or notes and he wasn't showed any of it until the middle of 2011 where he realised there was sort of every phone number that anyone could have on Simon Hughes, pages of information and crucially three names in the top corner, people who commissioned Mulcair, thought to be News of the World journalists who were targeting Hughes. So it just what the cops were prepared, what the cops were prepared to say in 2006 and to whom contrasted dramatically to what the cops are prepared to say to people now. You mentioned that those names, those three first names that were included in the corner of uh, Mulcair's notes. And we found out this week that the senior police officers didn't do much, if anything, to sort of pursue those leads. In fact, they didn't even ring up the News of the World and, and see if there were people with those same first names on the News International payroll. They didn't do a thing. What, what seems to have happened is that, uh, as we were saying... <laughs> Quite quickly, the cops sort of worked out basically the kind of dimensions of the scandal. But then they just felt it was just, they just didn't want to get involved. And I think the only, the only reason they did any prosecutions was because the palace was on their back because 
Goodman and Mulcair were targeting the phones of various sort of members of staff, private secretaries to Prince Harry and Prince William. Well, loads more from Leveson this week, but uh, we have to say that the focus swung away from the inquiry with James Murdoch's resignation as uh, executive chairman of the Sun's parent company, News International. Now, uh, how significant was this at the end of the day? Well, in one sense, it was unsurprising because we knew James Murdoch was already going to New York and he was going to obviously take up some slightly different responsibilities in News Corp. And it's unlikely he was going to, although he carries on being in charge of international television, they call it, which he was already in charge of, Sky Companies and Star Companies and so on. Uh, he uh, 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 It didn't make much sense for him to carry on doing News International, and so he, re- he stepped down as executive chairman. Except, of course, it, it, what it really does is it's just a signal on an ignominious retreat, um, uh, you know, to, to New York for James. It, he go, well, He was supposed to go to New York, in effect, as the kind of, you know, the man who was going to take over from dad as chief executive, you know, uh, uh, just like that. And in fact, he goes over as a sort of very weak and number three, well behind well behind Chase Kerry, who's the guy really running the company day to day. What's interesting is, is that they're also sort of increasingly sort of just pushing News International in London just into a box where it might be just rather easy, a little bit easier to let go. Not that Rupert want to let go. He loves that business and he loves those newspapers. But but look what's happened. You've got who's the chief executive of News International now? Tom Mockridge, New Zealander, uh, recent background, Sky Italia, pay television. Who's he reporting to? Chase Carey, US television executive. Knowledge and interest in newspapers? Probably pretty much nil. And really interestingly, Carey was down in Palm Beach, Florida, which is where these guys go, no doubt. And what was he saying at a conference there? When asked, would News Corp have a high a rating if it didn't own newspapers he sort of says pretty much yes there is an awareness that that, that we would well uh, you know i mean uh, whilst the answer to that question might well be of course the fact that he said it was very significant because while rupert's around the rule is always clear you, you know you, we don't talk about we you know we don't sell newspapers unless we absolutely have to for some reason but essentially we don't and i think chase carries flying a different flag and saying there might be a different future here uh, you know and that's why james murdoch's move is significant there isn't a Murdoch sort of right, you know, right, sort of uh, right at the top of News International anymore. And yeah, OK, Rupert's around and he's launching the sun and that's sort of great. You know, that's sort of great fun. But at some point he'll move on. And, and, and the other newspaper businesses and News Corporation, they report their chief executives report to Rupert. This is a reporting structure through Chase Kerry. And, 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 and if you look around the company as well, Les Hinton's gone. Rebecca Brooks has gone. The newspaper executives aren't there. The Brits aren't there in the top table anymore. London has been eclipsed, and that's what James Murdoch's move tells you all about. And we can't let this week go, and we can't let you go without mentioning Rebecca Brooks's horse. Oh, the horse! We've talked about all this serious stuff. None of it's had anything like the impact of Raisa, the police horse, which... Sadly now departed. Sadly, yes, yes, terrible. Well, one feels sorry for the horse, of course. Uh, I mean, an extraordinary state of affairs. So we learn that, that, that anyway, if you want to, if you want a horse, you apparently can go to the police and say, I'll, I'll look after an old retired police horse. In, in its final years, and, and if you've got it, you know how to look after horses and a farm. And look, you know, Charlie Brooks, Rebecca's husband, is a racehorse trainer and he knows his way around the, the nag. So in that sense, he's an ideal candidate. But it's funny, isn't it, how it ended up being Rebecca Brooks who got the horse. And, uh, funnier still, I suppose, although not for the horse. I think two years later it was returned. I think she got it in 2008, came back in 2010. And I think the Met Police were at pains to stay in substantially worse condition. Than uh, yes, I think it was poor but not serious condition. Yeah, yeah. poor but not serious condition. How, how kind of... Th- so they were making their point, and it just it just stuck in people's minds as as just an example of 
inappropriate closeness about you know and that that it's really interesting it's, it's really interesting that Rebecca Brooks hasn't been on the scene as an executive since last July but she really captures the public imagination and the story of Rice the horse set Twitter ablaze and finally Dan some breaking news there was a, a further arrest on Thursday as part of the police's uh, Operation Elverdon uh, that's right. We understand it was Virginia Wheeler, defence editor to the Sun. That's the eleventh uh, Sun journalist to be arrested. Uh, she was out of the country. Actually, when five other Sun journalists were arrested a little while ago, the police have been interested in her for a little while. So uh, it's not a new wave of Sun arrests, if you like it. You know, but it's it's an arrest. I think that will not have surprised anybody who's following this story very closely. Dan, thanks very much. There's more on all things Leveson at MediaGuardian.co.uk. Now, the Leveson Inquiry is about the only thing Sarah Millican hasn't turned up on as a panellist. Have I got news for you? Eight out of ten cats. Loose women, even, apparently, but um, but I I missed that one. Anyway, I caught up with Sarah, whose new BBC Two show, the Sarah Millican Television Show, starts next Thursday. That's the uh, 8th of March, if you're setting your PVR. I started off by asking her about her new show and her role as a co-producer. I'm really proud of it. I think it's really good, and it's exactly what we set out to make in the beginning, so that feels a, a real achievement. And um, and it's basically, um, we decided to sort of have a think about which things, what it is that I like, and the main thing I like to do is watch telly, which isn't massively adventurous, but at least, um, you know, there's a lot of people in the same boat as me. Yeah, it's a popular and, um, pursuit, and we yeah. this Exactly. We picked different uh, subjects um, and different sort of genres of television to put together and to bring in sort of, so I do a, a sort of opening monologue about that and then various bits of stand-up about that, sometimes talk to the audience. And then we have guests who are uh, experts in those areas. So, for example, the first episode is um, we have Chris Packham and Tracy Cox because we're talking about wildlife and Dayton, which are almost interchangeable, as I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure you understand. Uh, so we have experts in who then obviously give me a bit of information and sometimes teach me things. And, and it's all done in a sort of very, very light-hearted, very warm, very um, sort of positive way. And I just think it's, it's just really fun. It was so much fun to make. And, I've, you know, I'm really happy with how they've turned out. Now, comedy's never been as big, really, as it is on TV right now. Why do you think that is? Is, is, it, is it peaking? I think peaking implies that it's, you assume that it's on its way down after this, and I don't agree with that. I think I think comedy's only ever going to, I think, and I hope, obviously, it's my income. I hope it's ever, ever going to grow, and I think just, there's nothing... I mean, I'm, I'm a really good audience member. There's nothing as good as a really good laugh. And I think when you get in from work, you know, you know, a lot of people have incredibly stressful lives and stressful jobs, and you don't want to... You know, you just want to be entertained. You just want to be able to put the telly on and have a bloody good laugh before you go to bed and sort of, you know, hope it's a bit of a relief. It's a bit of a release, and you just sort of... You know, you can. It's quite a good sort of uh, tension, sort of reliever as well. And I think I just think you can't beat it. I don't. I mean, I used to write sort of short plays years and years ago, and they'd put them on like sort of a read through with an actor, and um, and then the audience would vote for which one they like best. And some people would do really wordy ones, and I always just did a funny conversation between a couple of pensioners. Every single one was a funny conversation between a couple of pensioners, and it invariably won because even though you can have something that's really well written and it's really poignant, people just will always vote for the laugh. People always just laughter comes above most things i find um clearly you're very successful i think your dvd was the fastest selling dvd of all time by a female comic last year but this is a bit of a live issue and that why aren't there more female comics on tv i think there are i think there are a lot i mean if you think of how many female comics there actually are uh, compared to how many male comics there actually are i think there are quite a few female comics on the tv who would you say are kind of blazing the trail are... along with you um, I think, I think you know, I think Miranda's done amazing things. I think um, Miranda has, you know, she's 
she just took the sort of old school style sitcom and just made it her own and has really renovated that whole genre of sitcom because I think a lot of people um, were sort of bored of that kind of sitcom quite a few years ago and she's just breathed sort of new life into it and I think she's done amazing work and the fact that she's in it and she's written it she's just she's she's a she's a tour of she's awesome I love Miranda so much but I think there's quite a few female comics coming through that are that are you know on the telly quite a lot Andy Osho seems to be on she, and she's, she's becoming you know on the panel shows quite a lot and um, Holly Walsh is coming through on the panel shows it's, I think if you think of how many female comics versus how many male comics there actually are anyway I think there are quite a few I mean part of the Watson and Oliver just started this week and I watched it and really enjoyed that and I've seen them in Edinburgh the last two years and they're great I just I don't it's just it's, it's a bit like I don't understand I know that people have to have an, a, sort of an angle on things and I think generally people will say um oh, you're from the North East, or you're a woman, or, you know, whatever your angle is. And I know that journalists in particular like to have an angle, and I understand that. But I just think it's it would be equally valid for you to say, hey, let's talk to loads of comics who don't like cheese. Um, and we'll just do a whole thing about people who don't like cheese. It's just an angle, and it's just, I understand that there has to be an angle, but I don't really see the relevance of it when people are either laughing or they're not. Yeah, well, I guess there's just a concern that maybe some female comics weren't being given the opportunity of kind of small screen time that men do. There was that BBC report, I think, last month that said there were said shows like QI and uh, Have I Got News For You, I think, or certainly QI anyway, sort of had sort of token women on the panel. You, know, you never get three women and one man. It's always, it's invariably three men and, and just a sort of single woman on there. Did they have a point or do you think they, they were... They were sort of exaggerating know, that issue as well. Again, it's a numbers game. I mean, if you, if, you know, if you if you look at something where you have um, like a bill of comics and a comedy club, they spread the women out over the months of the comedy club because there aren't that many women doing it. So that rather than obviously QI, for example, I mean, I've done that, and uh, you know, Sandy Toxic and and uh, Joe Brand, and there's quite a few women have done it. But if they put us all on one, then they won't have any comics for the rest of the series. So I think they have to spread people out a little bit more. Um, I don't know. I think because every because everybody talks about this as if it's a big subject of the why aren't there more women on the telly? I think women coming through um, have it possibly slightly easier than men coming through because men coming through have to compete with loads of other men. Where one woman coming through will be grabbed, absolutely grabbed. If she's any good, she'll be grabbed and she'll be put on a panel show, and that's sort of positive discrimination which I don't really agree with any more than negative discrimination I think you should just get on if you're good I just I would never want to be employed by somebody who was employing me for my gender I think that's so offensive my thanks to Sarah Millican and in case you've forgotten already her new BBC2 show starts on Thursday the 8th of March time to turn our attention to the radio now and I'm joined for this section by Matt Deegan creative director of radio at digital media consultancy Folder Media and station manager at kids' radio station Fun Kids. He's also an all-round radio guru, if I may call you that, Matt. Thank you very much, John. I think believe that's what it says in your passport. <laughs> well, first up, there's been big changes at Radio 1, where drive-time host Scott Mills swapped jobs with young whippersnapper Greg James. So James will be presenting the drive-time show, while Mills moves to the less prestigious early afternoon slot. There were other changes too, but we'll come on to those in a bit. Uh, Matt, what's Radio 1 controller Ben Cooper's thinking here? So Ben's been um, really sort of talking about lowering the age, which is quite a, an aggressive statement to make at, at Radio 1. It's a big radio station that lots of people listen to, um, people in their 20s and 30s, which drags that average age up all the time. And he's kind of come out and said, no, I'm going to push it lower. Uh, and I think this is one of the first uh, things we're starting to see uh, this this swap 
just helps the station gradually kind of keep that down. You know, Scott Mills has done a kind of great job of staying young and relevant. Uh, but if you're aggressively trying to lower the age, I could kind of see why you want to swap the two over. Because Greg James is uh, what, sort of mid-twenties and he's sort of down with the kids and drive time is a much more kind of high-profile slot with a bigger audience. Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at uh, Greg's career, uh, he sort of went from student radio into doing early breakfast, um, then uh, got a bit of a following, uh, got some hours underneath him, uh, and then he went to uh, that kind of afternoon slot. Uh, been there for a couple of years, uh, then now the move to drive. You know, he's been uh, kind of working hard, uh, getting better uh, and ready to take a, a larger slot. Also, kind of Scott, very, very popular. That's a hugely popular show. He's a hugely popular presenter. Uh, and actually moving him backwards slightly uh, uh, into the afternoons, uh, as he grows uh, a little bit older, uh, for an audience that aren't at school, uh, it's probably not a bad fit. And the bigger picture here, of course, is breakfast, with no end of speculation uh, for the last several years now about when, uh, if, when Chris Moyles will ever move on. And this surely makes um, Greg James the hot favourite. Are all bets off now in terms of who takes over from Moyles? Is it, is it Greg James or could it still be Fern Cotton or is there someone else? I think there's still lots of options. I think what's quite nice about this uh, is there are lots of different people being warmed up that could take on that role. You know, Who knows when Chris Moyles uh, will finally depart Radio 1. Um, he's uh, survived longer than some people thought. You know, he's the longest serving breakfast presenter uh, at the network. Uh, he could quite happily do to the end of this year. He could quite happily go on further. I think the thing with Moyles is when he's good, he's excellent. Uh, and he does chime with the audiences. Uh, and whilst... Uh, Older people do like listening to the show. He still has a strong younger audience as well. But so it, the way to think about it is you've got lots of people warmed up. So you've now got Greg, who's going to be in a more high-profile position, and more people are going to know about him. Uh, Grimmy is doing really well in evenings. Grimmy? This is Nick Grimshaw, I believe. Yeah, yeah and it's a really great listen. Uh, he's very young. On T4, Even younger than Greg James. I think. Uh, similar similar kind of ages. And I think yeah, on T4, uh, very known by the audience, uh, he's uh, doing well in that slot. You've got Fern, who's had a good couple of years now at mid morning as My well. Favorite. Uh, also you got Matt Edmondson uh, who's uh, got his evening show uh, also does some cover of cover on the network. So you've got a few different people uh, all around giving Ben a really good opportunity uh, to pick the right person at the point where uh, Chris decides not to do it anymore. And they're big changes and Ben didn't hang around to make them but one more word on Scott Mills. Uh, he's been around for a long time. At one time he was sort of tipped for breakfast himself mm. and uh, I turned uh, as young people do I believe to Twitter to find out what Scott made of all this but he hasn't actually tweeted much since the announcement or, or, or at all uh, his last two tweets were love radio one and might move to australia so um i mean ben cooper is, is known as a bit of a talent man good at managing talent but do you think he's gonna have his work cut out here uh, i don't know i think even if you're scott mills even if you feel that you've been slightly uh, demoted uh, it's still on a massive network with a huge audience uh, and actually where would you want to go you know there aren't that many good top jobs uh, out there for his kind of radio. Um, I think what's sort of interesting is will they sort of skip a generation with uh, after Chris Moyles to, to someone like Greg or, or, or Grimmy? Um, and so has Scott missed his chance. But I would also say uh, if you look back kind of last time when Chris Moyles got that slot, uh, sort of the thinking was he had passed it, wasn't going to happen for him, uh, that he was in a kind of drive time show, which I think had been made a bit shorter. Uh, no one thought he was going to get that show, that he should have got it three or four years before. They put him in there, did really well. So I still think there's a, a chance for Scott to, to grab that position. Okay, well, I mentioned other changes. J just briefly, a couple of other new names in the frame. Uh, Gemma Kearney, who's come in for Edith Bowman at weekends. Uh, she's come from one extra. And also, I think from one extra, is it Jamila? Now, I'm on the edge of my knowledge here. I turn to Mr. Google here. Jamila Jamil and so, uh, Danny Howard. So Jamila uh, is on T4. Uh, 
Uh, and so she did a, a kind of little practice show over Christmas uh, and she's going to be doing the request show, which is actually a great show to start with, two hours on a Sunday, uh, lots of talking to the audience. Uh, she's kind of new to radio, so great way to warm up. Uh, Danny's really interesting. So uh, Saturday's four to seven. Um, they're bringing back dance anthems. Uh, and Danny won a competition on Radio 1 a few months ago where they picked uh, a dance DJ um, to DJ in Ibiza with them. Uh, and I think since he did that, uh, they've done a few pilots with him. And that's a lovely slot to, to put someone in. Someone who's really representative of the audience, um, uh, isn't a traditional radio person, has kind of worked up, fan of music, fan of dance music as well, more mainstream dance music, which Radio 1 doesn't really have. Um, I think that's a, a really clever uh, person to put in there. It'd be interesting to see how he gets on. Dance anthems. Now you're talking. Who, was it? Who used to do dance anthems? Dave Pierce. Dave Pierce. Is he? Can he, can he be found on Radio Two uh, or Six Music? Or? He's been on Six Music and Radio Two. Well, well, good to know. And uh, Dave, hope you're listening. Well, uh, elsewhere in the Radio Week, former GMG Radio Chief Executive John Myers gave his verdict on BBC Local Radio. Now, as you may know, the BBC's 40 local stations in England have been in the spotlight because Director General Mark Thompson wanted to cut their budget by 15 million pounds as part of his delivering Quality First proposals. Yes, and you thought you'd never hear us talk about DQF again. Uh, now, Matt, John Myers is now Chief Executive of the Radio Academy. Uh, he said £15 million pounds of cuts was frankly going too far. It's, it's difficult. BBC Local Radio is difficult. Uh, it's a very odd structure. Loads of recharges from Central BBC, uh, from everything from buildings to news. It's, it's, when you look at the big figure, and it's like £120-130 million pounds that BBC Local Radio spends, you think gosh, that's got to be uh, cuttable somewhere. Well, actually, when you start to dive into it, it gets much harder. And that's what I think John found with this. Can you tell us what you mean by recharges quickly? Uh, so if you think um, BBC News head office uh, charges a certain chunk of their operating costs to other bits of the BBC, group HR, group technology, all those sorts of things. So when you actually look at what a station or a different part of the BBC can spend, uh, it isn't all available to be cut and, and sort of shut around. You've got this big central cost. Uh, and it isn't always allocated in a uh, uh, it's, well it tends to be allocated in an average way across the the organization so even if you're not using a big chunk of it you might be paying for it right. L- loads of different things came came out of this and one of the things john found out was things like local sports rights negotiated locally but paid for centrally so if you're a, a an editor of a local radio station you might want to get your football and you might try and do the best deal you can but actually you're not so worried about the cash because you're never going to see it on your budget line and someone in BBC Sport are going to have to pay for it anyway so there are lots of little things where are the stations being managed uh, completely properly do they have the autonomy uh, to really think about the money that they're spending and potentially saving just and, quickly on that I think people will be amazed that 40 or, or up to a good chunk of those 40 stations are all negotiating sports rights with their local football clubs locally uh, and UTV owner of Talk had something to say about that and said that you know maybe they're distorting the market because they're not necessarily the best negotiators yeah. and as you say they're not paying for it effectively uh, potentially I guess the opposing view of that is some of those editors have been there a long time relationships with right. uh, local teams so I'm sure there's a, a bit of toing and froing though would it be sensible for that to be negotiated centrally alongside TV rights I think it probably would be um, also I think for a lot of those football clubs uh, potentially quite lucky that their BBC local station broadcasts them because a lot of the commercial operators aren't really interested so there's been an interesting discussion about where the actual value is uh, and he said uh, well as we said DQF said 15 million pound of cuts but Myers thought what well, he said 
he thought nine million was reasonable and wouldn't have an effect on sort of the on-air quality. But um, if you halve the number of managing editors, which is a bit of a Myers theme, because he said similar with Radio One and Radio Two, cut back on the senior management, uh, you could save eleven million pounds, but but no more than that. Yeah, I think it's interesting if you look at the the central head office uh, out of Birmingham for BBC Local Radio. There's probably some different ways you could look at that. Uh, and again, sharing editors across sites. I don't think he was actually really even that aggressive with his uh, shared management. Yeah, you know, he was saying. Uh, sort of three local managers at each area and then some kind of group MDs uh, working across a number of different sites. If you, I, mean, I don't want to kind of completely compare this to the commercial model because, of course, it is a bit different. However, when you do look at management functions in commercial radio groups, they are shared, they are grouped. Um, the skills you need aren't necessarily local skills, they're management skills. Uh, and I think they'd be wise to, to take on some of these uh, suggestions. I think the interesting thing is, you know, they, there's a, a nice kind of, oh, we thank John for his help and support. The big test is, will they take on any of these things uh, in their plans? Well, that's the key, isn't it? John, John Myers said that um, one of the most controversial proposals was that they, they should share afternoon shows between neighbouring stations. And he said, no, don't do that. And he said, don't share uh, weekend programs as well so uh, i mean defenders of local radio will be delighted to see that but as you say the proofs in the uh, the proofs in what the trust and the bbc management sort of come back at the end of the day yeah it's been really interesting i've spoken to a few different staff at local stations and pretty much everybody agrees with what he says um i think there is something around cost especially around journalism uh and there's a lot of union issues that you can't necessarily be as flexible as you like little things like specialist programs on weekends uh Actually, the cost savings you'd make with that guy not coming and doing the folk show uh, would just be lost in any actual corporate function to make a network program. So these are odd little businesses and they are kind of little businesses and maybe they should be treated that way, um, that you can't just necessarily push in big group decision making. Uh, Saying that, though, I think... uh, there is a desire for stronger management, especially around talent uh, and historic HR systems and, and things to make those organisations work kind of smoothly and better. And speaking to lots of colleagues in those places, uh, you find that there are people who have been around for a long time, have no intention of going and maybe aren't always uh, generating the best uh, value for money for licence fee payers. Well, Matt Deegan, many thanks. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Matt, to Dan and, of course, to Sarah Millican. I've already pressed the record button on my remote for her BBC2 show. You can leave your feedback on anything and indeed everything you've heard on the Media Talk blog or our Facebook wall. I'm John Plunkett and Media Talk was produced by Mr Jason Phipps. I'll be back next week. See you then. The Guardian has partnered with audible.co.uk to offer listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a one-month, no-commitment trial of the Audible service. Audible has over 50,000 audiobook titles available to download. Go to guardian.co.uk slash audible for further details. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.